You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of James. Book of James. It's going to be closer to the back of your Bible. The, um, the James who wrote this letter <clears throat> is not to be confused with James, the son of Alphaeus, um, or James, the son of Zebedee, both who were uh, among the original twelve disciples. Shockingly, the James who's written this particular letter is the brother, or should I say the half-brother of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And I say that is shocking because when we first meet James in the Scriptures, he was a hard-hearted unbeliever. Uh, I think of Mark chapter 3, which talks about how his family thought that Jesus was out of his mind. We're explicitly told in John chapter 7 that not even his brothers believed in him. Now, that is a very sobering thing, isn't it? Uh, James and his brothers were closer to Jesus than anybody else was. Uh, They grew up with him. They ate meals with him. Jesus probably babysat them when they were younger. They saw his goodness and his purity of character, and yet even his brothers did not believe in him. You talk about sibling rivalry, and some of you know maybe something about that. You can think, think about James... Uh, who is a a sinner, and he is living with a brother who is perfect. You think about that, I can almost imagine Mary telling James, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? And you can imagine just kind of maybe some of that sinfulness and that resentment building up in his heart over the years. That's just speculation, but what we do know, though, is that he was hard of heart towards Jesus, and he did not believe in Him. And the unbelief of James just shows us something about the bondage of our own sinful hearts. Uh, It just shows us that our natural response to encountering God is not worship and amazement and attraction. It is instead a spiritual gag reflex. We are all like that apart from God's transforming work in our lives. But when we fast forward through the Bible and we come to the book of James we see a different man altogether. In fact, he opens up his letter by saying, James, a servant, that actually literally could be translated slave, a slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an incredible transformation. Can you ever imagine yourself calling yourself a slave of your sibling? But more than that, James does not say, I am a servant of Jesus of Nazareth, my brother. He says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's a royal title, a royal designation. It means messianic king. I used to think of this man as just my brother, my crazy brother. Now I bend the knee to him as king and savior and one who in the last days is going to come and establish a kingdom that is global. Something has happened to James between Mark chapter 3 and James chapter 1. God's gotten a hold of James's heart and has awakened him to the truth about Jesus. And I have an idea about 
how God did that, and I'll share that later. Now, what some don't realize about James is that he wasn't just some wandering servant of God, he was a pastor. James, after his conversion, became the leader of the very first church, the church in Jerusalem, which was a church that was thriving and growing. Uh, people were getting saved. Miracles were happening. They had the favor of all the people, as Acts chapter 2 says. It was just an amazing time. And then, suddenly, everything changed. It was like the church hit a brick wall. Persecution came. It hit hard. In Acts chapter 7, one of the deacons of the church, Stephen, was killed for preaching about Jesus. What a blow that would have been to that church. We're about to vote on new deacons next week. They're like, hmm, I wonder if I want to sign up for this. But imagine losing one of your deacons. Uh, Jewish authorities in opposition to the gospel were going from house to house, seizing men and women, dragging them from their homes, and throwing them into jail. Everyone who was a Christian suddenly was in danger. And a young, zealous, religious fanatic named Saul was behind that outbreak of terror, ravaging the church at every opportunity. And as a result, much of the church was scattered. And as these believers were fleeing from Israel and settling in different parts of the Mediterranean, they would establish house churches wherever they would go. But these Jewish Christians became like strangers in a strange land, far away from home, not accepted by their traditional unbelieving Jewish brothers, still under the threat of persecution, being oppressed and taken advantage of by wealthier Gentiles. They no longer enjoyed the favor of the people. Those glorious early days of the church of Jerusalem were in the rearview mirror and fading fast. And surely many of them were becoming discouraged and disheartened. And you can imagine that in these little tiny congregations, the patience of some of these believers are wearing thin. Anger and impatience and quarreling is breaking out in the membership of the churches. Uh, temptations to compromise with the world to, to relieve them of just a little bit of the pressure is growing. And even though the scattered church is far from Jerusalem, James is still their pastor. He still loves them. He still cares about them. He still wants to minister to them. And so after praying to God for the right words, he picks up a pen and he writes. And as his, as his letter opens to these scattered believers, he calls them the 12 tribes of the dispersion because they are scattered throughout the world. And James's goal is to help and encourage them and show them practically how faith works in a difficult world. That's why this sermon series is called Faith Works. Faith is more than just a mere intellectual assent to a bunch of facts. Faith actually does something, and James provides much wisdom on how to live between here and heaven. And that's why the book of James continues to speak today, because we find ourselves with the exact same needs and struggles and questions as James's original audience. As those first Christians found themselves far from home, living as exiles, dispersed through the world, alienated and marginalized, the same thing is true for you. Uh, the people of God today are scattered throughout the world. Uh, first, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, writing to both Jewish and Gentile believers, he calls us the elect exiles of the dispersion. <clears throat> Christians today 
are oppressed and rejected by the world. Even in less persecuted regions like America, we are feeling an increase of this feeling of displacement, aren't we? Of not fitting in. And we have this growing awareness that this is not our true home because we're longing for a better home, a heavenly city, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us. But in the meantime, we're tempted to get impatient and discouraged and angry, quarreling and division breaks out in our churches, and all the while the the temptations to compromise with the world to relieve just a little bit of the pressure increase. And so this ancient first century letter, because it is ultimately from God, pinpoints with amazing accuracy exactly where you and I live today and what you and I have to deal with. And James wants to tell us that faith works. It worked then, it works today. So let's together now hear this word from God to us. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. James, and we're going to look at chapter 1 and read on down through verse 4. Word of God says, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your holy and inspired Word. And I pray that you would speak through your word, that it would do its work in our hearts this morning, impacting and affecting the lives of both believers and unbelievers, and we collectively as a congregation look forward to what you have to say to us in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Yeah, I was originally going to preach through the I don't know, the first 15 verses or so of this chapter, and then I looked at it and got going. I'm like, I'm not going to make it. So we're, we're just going to camp out on these first four vor- verses for now. Uh, James has a lot to say <clears throat> um, to you in this letter, but before he gets anywhere else, the very first thing he wants to deal with is the subject of trials. He's a pastor. He's sensitive to this. He knows what people are going through, and he knows that before before they can hear anything else, he's got to, to, he's got to first help them to frame their trials and their difficulties in a proper perspective, because if not, they're likely not going to hear anything else that he has to say. They're going to tune it out. <clears throat> and the first thing that James wants us to uh, instruct us in is uh, our response to trials. And so, he is encouraging us by showing us what, what a right response to trials is. And he says in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, let's be honest. How many of you wish that that Scripture wasn't in the Bible? (laughs) Most of us probably don't have the courage to admit that, but I would dare say that many of us look at that verse and we balk, especially in light of whatever you went through this week. Notice, by the way, that the text does not say, count it all joy, my brothers, if you meet trials of various kinds. It says, count it all joy, what? When 
you meet trials of various kinds. It's not a matter of if, it's when. Either you're in a trial right now, or you're coming out of a trial and about to go into another one. Because trials are a normal part of the Christian life. Not one of God's people is exempt from trials. Jesus Himself promised, in this world you will have trouble. Now, some of us come from a Christian tradition that either explicitly or implicitly teaches that as long as we're doing the right things in life, as long as we're being obedient to God, or, or as long as we have enough faith, that things will go easily and smoothly. But one of the first things that James wants to teach us about the life of faith is that it will come with trials. Now, that in and of itself should bring at least a little bit of encouragement to you, because sometimes when when tough circumstances come into a believer's life, maybe we get sick, uh, maybe we have financial difficulties, uh, maybe other things in our lives are going wrong, for some believers, often the first default response is to think, well, I must be doing something wrong. God must be mad at me. I must be on the wrong track, because if I, I was on the right track, If I was obedient to God, if I had enough faith, things would be going a lot easier for me. I wonder if you've ever thought that. I think many of us have had those thoughts go through our minds before. But the Scriptures are teaching us that that's simply not the case, necessarily. And one of the most helpful verses for me on this point is Acts chapter 14, verse 22. And there you have the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, and they're going around from church to church with a word of encouragement for them as they are going through difficult times. And what does he tell them as they're going through these difficult times? Does, does he say, well, you're obviously on the wrong track, because if you were doing things right, everything would go smoothly for you. So figure out what you're doing wrong, get it right, and life will go easier. Is that what he says? No. Is that what he says at all? Instead, we are told that Paul and Barnabas went around strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. And you have to ask, well, why would that be an encouraging word? Why would that, why would that encourage these struggling churches? The reason it is a word of encouragement is because they now know that their difficulty and their tribulations are not a sign that they are not on the road to the kingdom of God. They're still on the right road. They're still headed for the kingdom, and they're reminded that the road to the kingdom leads through many tribulations. So if you're here this morning and you're going through a trial, going through a tribulation, guess what? That's just par for the course for the people of God, whether your faith is strong or whether it's, whether it's weak. But either way, regardless of why specifically the trial has come into your life, that actually is almost incidental in regards to the response that we are to have to our trials. James says when we meet trials of various kinds, various kinds, whether it's financial trouble whether it's a relational trial, whether it's a health difficulty, whether it is the natural consequence of my own sin. Yes, some of the trials that we experience, we do bring upon ourselves because of our stupidity, because of our sin. But, but regardless of what kind of trial is going on, uh, the response of the people of God is to count it all joy. That's not a suggestion, by the way. That's not optional. 
It's a command for the people of God. Now, this does not mean that we aren't permitted to feel pain, uh, to have sorrow, to weep. Jesus experienced all of those things. Does it mean that we are stoically unmoved by the heartbreaking things that happen in this life? And it doesn't mean that we can't ask God for relief. Neither does this kind of joy mean that we are giddy and giggling. (laughs) No. Biblical joy is often a joy that is present even while experiencing pain and sorrow and tears. In fact, the normal Christian life is, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And so what is joy? One pastor put it very well when he defined biblical joy as contentment of heart and a happiness of soul that comes not by circumstances. It can exist independent of circumstances. It can be present even during difficult trials. But how? How does this happen? How do we experience the kind of joy that is persistent through the most difficult storms of life? A kind of joy that that serves like a steady anchor in a storm-tossed sea. I think the key is those first two words of verse 2. James says, count it or consider it. John MacArthur provides some help when he says that if you really think about something, if you really process what's happening, you begin to come not only to an understanding of what effect it's having on you, but where it's going to lead. You cannot process something in your mind without processing its implications, and that's very important. In fact, you could translate count it as think forward. And so, in processing the trial that you're going through, think forward, look ahead to its benefit. Get out of the trauma of the moment, because there's no joy in the immediate pain. Don't merely consider the pain of the moment. Instead, think forward. So what James is calling you to here is not just raw emotion, but a certain way of thinking. He's wanting to produce in your mind right thinking. Right thinking will produce right feelings, and it will equip us to deal with the things that come at us in our lives. And right thinking includes thinking forward, which is going to include an appreciation for the reason for our trials. And so that's where James takes us next here. He wants to remind us that there is a divine reason for trials. We can't respond to our trials with joy if we're not considering the reasons for our trials. And so James says, for you know. For you know. That's the first three words of verse 3 there. For you know. James isn't just saying emote, uh, feel something. A a right response to trials begins with your thinking. Uh, There's something that you have to know to process in your mind before you can even experience joy. And, And what is that knowledge? He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, this is huge. And the reason why is because these verses are telling us that God is in your trial and has a purpose in your trial. You never, ever want to separate God from your trial. To do so will inevitably lead to fear and despair, which is the exact opposite of joy. 
If you want to believe that God isn't sovereignly involved in your trials, then you might as well become an atheistic evolutionist. Why do I say that? Because in naturalistic evolution, you have a world where things happen by chance. There is no design. There is no purpose. And therefore, there can be no ultimate hope for a good outcome. And when you are going through intense tribulation and suffering, the best that a, that a naturalistic evolutionary worldview can tell you is, you're suffering, there's no purpose, good luck with that. Uh, try to invent some purpose in, in the imagination of your mind, and if you can't do that, too bad, so sad, it's survival of the fittest, but don't worry, in a few years it'll all go black and you'll cease to exist. What a wonderful worldview. If that's my worldview, that's the best that I've got for you in your trials and your tribulations. But as you sit here this morning suffering from various trials, the Scriptures have a better message for you. God is sovereign over your trials. Charles Spurgeon, who was no stranger to trials, both physical and mental, he, he had lots of health issues, but also suffered from debilitating depression. If he was around today, he would have been clinically diagnosed as severely depressed. And yet, Spurgeon said that it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by His hand, that my trials were never measured out by Him, nor sent to me by His arrangement of their weight and quantity. You see what Spurgeon's doing? He's, he's taking comfort in the fact that evolution is not true, uh, that, that there is a, a grand design behind everything that is happening, both good and bad. But not only is God sovereign over your trial, but He has a good purpose in it. In other words, if God were 100% sovereign, but He were not 100% good, that would provide no comfort for us. But God is not only all sovereign, but He's all good, and James is telling us He has a good purpose in this. And James is telling you that, a, that, that, uh, that God has a design, a, a, an end goal in the things that are happening. And He is telling you to joyfully think ahead to that purpose, and that helps because we see here that the joy that we're to have is not in the pain in and of itself. That would be twisted, Right? In other words, you should not come to church this morning and say, praise God, I have cancer, cancer's great. Shouldn't do that. If you say that, somebody should rebuke you. Cancer is not great. Cancer is part of the curse that has come into the world through sin, and it's one of the things that Jesus will one day totally defeat and put it into. Instead, what you are to praise God for is His good design and purpose in the cancer, in the situation, in the financial difficulty, in the trial. And so, that leads to the next question, what's the purpose? What's the design? The purpose, James says in verse 3, is steadfastness. What is that? What is steadfastness? Well, you could define it as an ongoing faithfulness to God that keeps going. You could define it as staying power. You could define it as spiritual toughness and grit which is a determined steadfastness that sees beyond the present pain to a higher goal, to something more important beyond what's happening here. Steadfastness is where your faith is getting built up and getting stronger and stronger. So, what the Scriptures are telling you 
is that you should realize that when trials come into your life, God is not being your enemy. Hear that. God is not being your enemy when the trials come into your life. He's not trying to harm you. He's not trying to take anything ultimately good away from you, even though if we're honest, we are sometimes tempted to accuse God of that very thing. Instead, in all of this, God is seeking to bless you. I think about what God says when He expresses His heart attitude towards His people in Jeremiah chapter 29. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare or peace and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's always God's attitude towards His people. And that word welfare or peace, that's the Hebrew word shalom, which has everything to do with a person having a sense of spiritual wholeness and completeness because he is in right relationship with God and his neighbor. Shalom is the goal. Shalom is the ultimate good blessing that God has for all of his people. James wants you to know that God is seeking to bless His people by helping us to grow in our own personal holiness. Holiness can be summed up in loving God and in loving neighbor. That's the essence of shalom. Another way you could define holiness is Christ-likeness. Every trial that the Christian experiences is designed to help the believer more and more get towards that end. Now, this can be very unsettling, because when you think of God's blessing, when you think of God blessing your life, when you think of God doing good to you, what do you and I typically tend to think of? We tend to think of immediate physical comfort. We tend to think of promotion on the job. We tend to think of the doctor's report coming back in our favor. We think of Our kids turning out exactly the way that we want. That's what we tend to think of when we think of the blessing of God in our lives. We equate God's blessing with God's endorsement and approval of all of our preferences and all of our hopes and all of our dreams. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with having preferences and hopes and dreams and praying to God and asking God uh, for those things. Sometimes God uh, does bless us in that way by granting us those, those things. But when God takes a wrecking ball to our dreams, when He sovereignly permits things to come into our lives that don't match up with the story that we have written, and he erases that and writes another story, we tend to not see that as the blessing and favor of God on our lives. Because often, often, we care more about our comfort than our holiness. I know I do. And that's the exact opposite of God's priority for us. You see, God's purpose for you is growth and holiness Christ-likeness, and a greater experience of Him in your life that comes through spiritual maturity. One day, every believer is going to stand before Almighty God, and God's goal from now until then is to prepare you for that day by making you more and more like Jesus starting now. But our priorities, my priorities, are often different than God's, which is why we are devastated when the desires and plans and preferences that we have for our lives crumble. 
You and I need help. We need help from God in shifting our priorities because to the degree that our priorities line up with God's is the degree that we will be able to count it all joy when the trial hits because we can have the confidence that the hand of God is not destroying us but building us up into the image of His Son. Now, how does this work? How does the testing of our faith in trials actually do this good work in us? Well, James, when he talks about testing, he's, he's borrowing an image from the world of metallurgy. Um, that word testing in the Greek is the word dokimon, not pokemon, dokimon. It's a rare word in the Bible, but it's used to describe the process of refining silver or gold. When a, when a metallurgist mines a metal, he finds it in its ore state. But that's not the end of the process because the ore contains lots of imperfections and impurities that keep the metal from being both strong and beautiful. If you're here this morning and you're wearing jewelry, uh, I guarantee you you're not wearing ore. Uh, the, the, the metal in that bracelet or the rings or whatever, that metal has been tested. It's been refined to a certain degree. That ore has gone through a process which includes being made subject to extreme heat that ends up breaking that ore down and liquefying it and boiling it. And through this process, the imperfections can be purged out of the ore and can be then the ore then can be made and transformed into something more beautiful and stronger than it was before it went through the intense process of testing. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, that is exactly what James is talking about in regards to what God is doing for you right now. I purposely said for you instead of to you because this is for your benefit. God is for you and not against you. If you are a believer, if your believer is as if God has rescued you from a mine and you are a piece of ore and he looks at you and he sees imperfection. Now that might be humbling uh, that might be hard for some of you to hear. If it is, turn to your spouse and ask if you're still imperfect. Or turn to your kids. Or turn to your parents. Or, or a friend. Uh, they'll help you. They'll be glad to help you get a right view of yourself. There is still much wrong with you. Uh, the people closest to you are going to see those imperfections in you the most. And God sees that imperfection in you more than anybody else does. But, but he also sees something more than that. God has looked past your imperfections, and He has looked ahead, so to speak, and He knows how beautiful and precious you can be. Uh, but to get you from being ore to being a precious jewel, He's got to turn up the heat. Uh, he's got to take you through some things, and it's radical, and it's painful, and it's hard to believe, but in those moments, God is giving you grace. He's, if, the, if the Bible is true, then God is giving you grace in those moments of affliction because He is purging out those imperfections, because the heat of those trials brings forth those imperfections. Don't they? Don't, isn't when the, the heat is on in your life? Think about the top two trials that you've gone through this past week, and, and there's been some heat in your life, and maybe you've noticed some ugly things that are coming out of your mouth coming out of your heart in response to the trial, in response to the pressure that's being put on you. Maybe some anger has come out. 
Maybe some pride, maybe some tendencies to cope with your pain in sinful ways. God wants to expose those imperfections in the trial and deal with those things, to to purge you of anything and everything that is keeping you from being everything that you could be. Imperfections that are keeping you from loving and enjoying God to the fullest. You know, I think of… one of my heroes, modern-day heroes of the faith, Johnny Erickson Tata, quadriplegic, 50 years, because of a diving accident she had, and she thanks God for her wheelchair. That's almost as crazy as what James says here about count it all joy. But she acknowledges that God has done a work in her life through the pain, through the suffering, through the denied requests for healing. And she's at the point now where she thanks God for her wheelchair. I was reading something from the other day, and she said, I don't think you'll find a happier Christian than me. What? She's caught it. She's caught what James is talking about here. And she has come to recognize that anything that can give me a greater level of spiritual maturity, that can get me to a greater point where I can to a greater degree, see and savor Jesus Christ, Jesus is worth it. And I pray that God would make my heart like that. I know God has a lot of work to do here still, which means, I suppose, more trials are coming for me. David Platt notes that if the goal is just to fix your circumstances, and let's be honest, I mean, usually in the trial, that's my number one goal. Just get me out of this. Just, just fix this problem. And again, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be free from a difficult situation. But very often, that is my ultimate priority, and I think that's where the problem is. David Platt says, if the goal is just to fix your circumstances, then you're setting yourself up for constant frustration because often the circumstances won't get fixed like you want it to, and sometimes it won't get fixed at all. But if your ultimate goal is not to fix your circumstances, but to know God and to grow in God, then rejoice, because no matter what your circumstances, you will achieve your goal. Trials are joy when God is our goal. It's a hard truth, isn't it? It is a hard truth, but it's true. The psalmist himself testifies to this when he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now. I keep your word. Uh, The affliction, he says, the affliction you brought into my life was designed to get my life into greater conformity with you and your word, and therefore it's a blessing. It's grace. It's something I can be thankful about. It's something I can rejoice about. Or I think of uh, uh, Job 36, 15. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. In other words, the trial helps us to be more in tune with God and His Word. It's like what C.S. Lewis said, that, that, that that pain is God's megaphone in the world. Christian brother, Christian sister, God's work in your trials is God's grace in your life. Sometimes grace comes in uncomfortable forms, but it is nonetheless God's grace and kindness to us. And so to expand on that definition of joy that I shared earlier, 
Joy is a contentment of heart and a happiness of soul that comes not by circumstances, but by the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God enables us to see the love and kindness of God to us in life's circumstances. So we're told how to respond to our trials because of the reason for our trials. And ultimately, Pastor James encourages his troubled, persecuted, and scattered church members uh, to look ahead to the reward in the wake of our trials. That's my final observation. Our trials are meant to produce steadfastness, but the steadfastness itself is not the end. It's, it's rather, uh, the end is rather something that I've already hinted at in this message. Uh, verse 4, James says, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the goal. That's the finish line. It's perfection. In other words, the Christian life is not merely an endless growing into the image of Christ, always growing but never getting to where we need to be. That would be discouraging. Instead, the full effect of steadfastness, of perseverance, is perfection. It is finally being everything that God designed you to be, uh, where once you were imperfect and unrefined, or you will one day be completely perfected. That's going to be one of the best things about heaven. Isn't it going to be awesome to, like, not sin anymore? To have those imperfections fully and finally purged? The purging process is beginning now, but it will be achieved one day in heaven. This is not going to be an endless process. And so the Apostle Paul says in, uh, in Romans 8, you can go up to the top of the screen there, Romans 8, it says, and we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now, often we quote verse 28, that God works all things, including trials, together for our good. And that's very encouraging. But often we drop off verse 29. We don't talk about that, uh, which is not helpful because Paul tells us ultimately what the good is. And you can see it there. Verse 29, what's the good? What's the ultimate good? What's the ultimate blessing? It's not a new car. It's not a bigger bank account. It's not your life plan coming to fruition. He says it in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is the ultimate goal of God for you. That's the ultimate purpose and priority and work that he is doing in your trials right now, in your sickness, in your pain, in your difficult relationships, in a disappointing marriage, in disappointing singleness, in your flat tire on the way to an appointment tomorrow morning, in feeling the sting of the consequences of your own sin. God will take you where you never intended to go to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Whatever the trials may be, whatever they may be, they are all tools of God in His refining plan for you to take that imperfect chunk of rock that you are and shape you into something strong and beautiful and perfect, to shape you into the image of Christ, reflecting Him and His glorious beauty like a perfect mirror. That's encouraging because it means that your sufferings are not the end of the story. It means that something much better is coming your way, and it is in the knowledge of that that you and I are to have a joyful attitude in our trials. Your affliction, your affliction is not in vain. Whatever you're going through now that is keeping you awake at night 
and that is causing you to shed bucketfuls of tears. It's not in vain. It's hard. It hurts. But it's not in vain, and it won't last forever, child of God. I promise you that. It's, it's what the Apostle Paul, who suffered way more than I can relate to, was talking about when he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What you're going through right now is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to you. The Scriptures are very honest. The scriptures are very honest. doesn't sugarcoat anything. Uh, scriptures are telling you that your best life is not now. But praise God, it's coming soon. And everything that is happening to you is working towards that glorious end. It's a, it's a theme that is so common in the Bible story, isn't it? The reality, on the one hand, the reality of the deepest pain and suffering and affliction which, on the other hand, is eventually overtaken and eclipsed by the deepest and most satisfying joy. And that should not be surprising to us, considering that our religion is one with the cross at its epicenter. Earlier I said not one of God's people, no matter how good they are, no matter how much faith they have, are exempt from trials and afflictions. And perhaps James was gripped by this truth more than most because his elder brother... The one whom James used to think was insane and crazy, but who eventually turned out to be the Son of God, that man endured a trial and an affliction more intense, more extreme, and more painful than any of God's people ever have. No man was as faithful to God as Jesus. No man was as obedient and good and innocent as Jesus. If your level of faith is to determine your level of trials, then folks, nothing bad should have ever happened to Jesus. And yet the Scriptures say Jesus was a man of sorrows who suffered greatly. But for Jesus, the trials did not come into His life to purge Him of His sinful imperfections. He had none. Instead, His suffering came about to purge us of ours, to remove from our heads the ultimate penalty of sin, death and hell. And that's why Jesus, though God, became a human being to represent sinners, to bear our sin for us, to be punished for our sins in our place. If the people of God are to be considered strangers and exiles in this world, how much more so Jesus? He was rejected by His own people. Uh, when He hung on the cross suffering the very wrath of God, suffering the very pains of hell as God was punishing our sin in Him, most of His closest friends had scattered. And James, James wasn't even there. Where are you, James? Even his brother was absent. Uh, during Jesus' greatest affliction, his brother is nowhere to be seen. And it does make me wonder if James sometimes, even years later, felt grief and sadness over that. I wish I was there for him. He had mocked his brother, left him to die. But you can know that James, who writes so wisely here in chapter 1, understands better than most how God brings a good end for his people through the worst 
of fiery trials. Because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 writes a list of those whom the resurrected Jesus appeared to, and this is what he says. Sorry about the spoiler that, you know, popped up five minutes ago, but there it is. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500, then he appeared to James. I think that's what led to James' conversion. That was the thing that God used to finally open James's eyes to the truth. Most people would have seen Jesus suffering as a sign of God's disapproval and abandonment. But, but, when, but when you see your dead brother, whom you mocked and made fun of, and when you suddenly see him come back, and he is alive and well, I would call that vindication and a sign of God's approval. And because James bent the knee to Jesus and stopped seeing Jesus as the crazy sibling and started receiving him as Savior and God and King, all of James's sins became forgiven and washed away, even the sin of not being there for Jesus, even the sin of rejecting Jesus during, during his earthly life. All of those things have been forgiven. His soul was finally made right with God for the first time. He began to experience the shalom of God. And that peace, that forgiveness is available to all who follow James's footsteps and do the same thing. If you're an unbeliever, that, that is the only application for you in this sermon today. That's it. And I hope you will seize that. Because if you don't, if you don't, your trials are not a sign that God is working to produce steadfast Christ-likeness in you. They are instead a foretaste of a worse trial to come, an eternal trial in hell. And you will pay the price for your sins because you would not accept Jesus' payment for them. Don't, don't make that mistake. If you're a believer, be encouraged. God is actively working in your trials for your blessing and for your benefit. I promise you, He is for you. He's not against you. And it is that hope that can provide joy and peace even in our darkest afflictions. But know that even though God is shaping you and refining you, you actually have a responsibility in this process. Uh, not only to count it all joy, but also notice in verse 4, James says, let steadfastness have its full effect. That's a command. You suffering Christian, let it have its full effect. In other words, he's saying, don't defeat the purpose of the trial. Let the trial perform its work in you. This is, this is why trials can be so dangerous for us, because sometimes for the sake of comfort or, or out of impatience or fear, uh, we abandon obedience and we abandon faith in order to avoid the pain, to get some relief. And so we might pull back from church. We might pull back from the people of God. We, we might seek a, a false comfort of sinful pleasures because that's easier than the way of faith. James is telling you, don't do that, but to instead embrace the refining process of what God is doing and to trust His loving hand even when you can't see His plan. Does it mean you can't pray for relief? Does it mean you can't pray for healing? Does it mean you can't pray for financial help? Does it mean you can't pray for help, help in your marriage or, or, or other things that you're going through? And matter of fact, you should pray about them. You should pray about them every single day. Jesus, when he was in the garden facing his greatest trial, said, Father, if there be another way, let this cup pass from me. If Jesus can do that, you can do that too. You can say, Father, let this cup pass from me. I don't like this cup. I don't want this cup. 
But don't stop there. If you're going to pray like Jesus, you've got to follow through and say what else Jesus said. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours, yours be done. In those moments of great pain, when you face great temptation, what do you do? What do you do? How do you let steadfastness have its effect? You do what the author of Hebrews told other suffering brothers and sisters. You look to Jesus, our ultimate example, who for the joy set before him, which was the joy of saving you and glorifying God, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised his shame. And you realize in that moment when you look to Jesus that you were never called to do anything that Jesus himself did not go through, to endure trials with joy, because of the sure expectation of an outcome that will far outweigh the pain of what you're going through. Jesus has blazed the trail for you and has come out safely on the other side of the trial, having saved his people and is now seated at the right hand of God. So, we do not lose heart, the Apostle Paul says. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. 